This is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast, hosted by Roman Prokopchuk, bringing you all things digital marketing, tech, business, and motivation. What's stopping you from becoming relentless in all aspects of life? Are you ready to become a digital savage? Let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, this is Roman Prokopchuk and this is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast. Today I have with me Scott Miller. Scott is the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey, an Amazon number one in Wall Street Journal bestselling author, host of Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast, and an Inc.com columnist. Thank you for joining me today. Roman, thank you for the invitation and the platform. My pleasure. So tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you get to where you are today? Well, like most successful people, three steps forward, two steps back, sometimes four steps back, right? It's, it's been an amazing journey. I'm 52. I live here in Salt Lake City, Utah, where Franklin Covey is headquartered. Uh, I've been in the firm for just shy of 25 years. I'm a father of three boys and married for 11 years. Um, I'm from Florida originally. So I was uh, uh, raised in central Florida back in the 70s, worked for the Disney company for four years, the Disney development company. And they invited me to leave after about four years, which is their nice way of saying you're fired, get out. And the, uh, the Franklin Covey company picked me up, moved me out to Utah. And I've had an amazing journey, 20 years in sales. Sales leadership was the chief marketing officer for eight years of what is a worldwide brand built on the back of some phenomenally successful leadership books, including the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey. And we are now the most largest, I think, most credible leadership development, consulting, training, performance improvement company. Um, I've authored several books. I host the world's largest subscribe to leadership podcast, as you mentioned, called Scott Miller on Leadership. And here I am landing on your podcast. It's an honor. That's awesome. And uh, in terms of kind of that move, was your family ready for that move? Uh, I know a lot of people get opportunities and those opportunities are kind of once in a lifetime. And if you take it, you may or may not get it. So how was kind of the transition from Florida to Salt Lake City, Utah? Well, I was a family of one. Oh, so okay. I moved so to it's Salt a little Lake. easier. Right. But it's a great story, right? Because I moved to Salt Lake City when I was 26 years old. So here is this single Catholic boy from Orlando moving out to Provo, Utah, right? Full of Mormons. It'd be like if you were Jewish moving to Vatican City. Amazing culture shock, right? So for me, it was a huge move, but it was a great opportunity because just culturally, four seasons, no humidity, snow skiing. It was like going to a paradise from a Floridian, right? But it was a tough, it was a tough change culturally. Um, a lot of crying, some tears, a lot of struggles. A lot of did I make the right decision? But um, I assimilated in well into the state. I moved to London for a year, moved to Chicago for six years and came back ultimately to raise my family here. And so Utah is very different today than it was, you know, 25 years ago, much more diverse, more progressive, great place to visit and to live. Met my wife in Chicago. We moved here, got engaged, got married and had three boys. Now I was 41 when I got married. So I was single for the majority of my life. So for me, um, luckily there wasn't a family to assimilate into the culture. Um, My wife and I are not members of the dominant faith of the state although a lot of our friends are, and it's been a wonderful journey. It was rocky in the beginning. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it differently, 
but I wasn't aware all that I was in for moving to such a cultural ship. And in terms of kind of across your career, obviously uh, it's, you know, accomplished and several years already down the line, what's kind of been, I would say the, the biggest learning experience in terms of that, that has helped you propel you to where you are today. Yeah, I think two things, you know, one is a book that I read recently that kind of described my career path. It's written by a guy named David Epstein. And the book is called Range, R-A-N-G-E. And David is a researcher, fairly renowned author. He basically promotes, there's two types of careers, right? Specialists and generalists. And that for the last, you know, 100 plus years, the successful people, if you will, were generally specialists, anesthesiologists, right? Chemical engineers, people that earned a credential. And that really the future of the economy is not not to be a specialist, but that generalists tend to take pride and some frustration in doing a lot of different things. And I was here, I was 48, and I was a salesperson, a sales leader, author, speaker, writer, keynote, podcast host, radio host. Not sure what I was. I was a lot of things. And I think in your 20s and 30s, it can be a little bit insecure if you're a generalist. Unlike looking at your friend who, you know, is a accountant, right? Or is a chiropractor or, you know, a project manager. These are very specific skills. They're paying off their college debt quickly. They're, you know, they're very confident about who they are. Their identity is very formed. And I think in your 20s and 30s, even in your 40s, if you're a generalist, you are a little insecure because you're not quite sure what your skill is. You're an entrepreneur. You're a business owner. You're an inventor, innovator. And then there comes a time, Roman, when you're like in your mid-40s to 50s, where all that information, all that learning, all that struggle kicks in, and you're less confer- concerned about your identity, your title. And now you have this wealth of knowledge to pull from and really deploy to your career. So I would give people the permission, the confidence. Be okay that you're a generalist in your 20s and in your 30s. You're going to feel insecure. You're going to feel perhaps like you're a late bloomer. But all that knowledge, all that learning, all that assimilation is going to come into its full sometime in your early 40s, maybe even 50s, and then you crush it for 25 years, right? Um, While specialists are doing great. But once you're an anesthesiologist, you're always an anesthesiologist. Once you're a commercial airline pilot, I don't know many of those that came therapists. That became entrepreneurs, right? Both tracks are great. They're just different. Second thing I learned. We have time for this? Yep. It really gave me permission to be comfortable being a generalist. And I, and I, I want that insight not to fall hard on your, on your listeners. The second thing I learned is the value of understanding when to be efficient and when to be effective. Dr. Covey wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's often misquoted in the press as being the seven habits of highly efficient people. No, there's a difference between being efficient and being effective. And one's not right or wrong. You just employ them differently. I'm a very efficient person. You can tell. I'm amped, a lot of energy. I get stuff done. I'm very productive. I like to check things off. I'm the kind of guy who gets up at four in the morning. I write my column for Inc. Magazine from four to five. I write my books from five to seven. I'm a dad from seven to eight. I'm a, you know chief officer in a company from eight to six, a dad again, you get the point, right? Being efficient is a great skill set. Texting, emailing, 
mowing the lawn, washing the car, some meetings, but you cannot be efficient in your relationships. You have to move out of an efficiency paradigm into an effectiveness paradigm because you can't be quick with people. Let me tell you, people are not an organization's most valuable asset. It's not true. You hear it all the time, the HR bunk. People are not an organization's most valuable asset. It is the relationships between those people that is every company's killer advantage. That Roman can have a, you know, a black belt in Six Sigma, and Scott can be a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford. But if Roman and Scott can't get along, can't diffuse our conflict, can't complement each other, forgive each other, pre-forgive each other, we don't need them in organizations. So as you are growing your career, remember, with people, fast is slow. And slow is fast. Slow down in the conference call. Slow down on the Zoom meeting. Close your laptop face-to-face. Turn off your phone. Put down your watch. Take off your Apple Watch, all the dinging and pinging. How you build relationships in life, which is all that matters, is you got to know when to be efficient and when to be effective. You cannot be efficient in your relationships. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, the first point you made about kind of, I think, trying as many things as possible kind of in your 20s and 30s, see what fits. And I mean, I had the the privilege and kind of like the opportunity to take in, uh, I graduated with a degree in criminal justice, the economy tanked in the 2008, 2009 recession. And then I got an opportunity to pivot into digital marketing and run with it. And it's one of those things where it's an industry that's obviously emerging, ever changing with technology, different platforms, things of that nature. So I'm constantly kind of learning and, and being in, in that kind of environment doesn't get dull or complacent because like you said, like if I was doing something that's monotonous or the same thing for 20, 30, 40 years, me personally, I don't think anything's wrong with it for other people, but I wouldn't be motivated and driven. And I think like your second point, I think uh, soft skills and emotional IQ are big. And even if you have sometimes an all-star team, they may not perform. You have to have kind of people that complement each other and are the right fits to basically become a well-oiled machine. Yeah. And you, you mentioned a good point around disrupting yourself, right? Everyone is going to be disrupted in your career. The question is, is someone else going to do it to you or are you going to do it to yourself? Act or be acted upon. It's one of the best lessons that I've learned in my own career was I was always one step ahead of the boot. I always left my role before I thought I might be getting stale, right? So I've never been um, complacent in my career. I've been fortunate to have nine careers inside of Franklin Covey because I never waited for the CEO to come call me and say, you know, Scott, I've been thinking. No, I always stepped away one or two years before I felt that conversation was coming. Act or be acted upon. Yeah, I think it's important to to know that point. I think being kind of self-aware and then kind of going into something else where you can be utilized or is a passion or you can use something that you learn from your other role. I think it's key to get the most out of an employee as well. Yeah. Well said. So what currently motivates you to succeed? Obviously those motivations may have been different when you moved, you know, from Florida to, to Utah, but what currently motivates you to succeed? Well, I'm a father now. I mean, I'm a father of three sons. They're six, eight, and 10. So that's my motivation purpose in life. I'll be honest. I never wanted to be a parent. I didn't want kids. I didn't want to get married. 
I thought I was going to be a confirmed bachelor, right, with a Porsche. And then I went to the gym one day and saw a lady and fell in love and got married and she wanted to have kids and it wouldn't have been fair to marry her and deny her that. So I went into the kid thing begrudgingly. Uh, I tell them that frequently. So they probably need therapy later on. Uh, but now that I'm a dad, that's my purpose in life is to launch these three young boys as gentlemen, to be trustworthy and honest and abundant, tell the truth, celebrate diversity, recognize their own biases, work hard, play hard. So my motivation is to be a good model to my children about my work ethic, managing our money well, treating people of different races and colors and genders and orientations with respect and not just tolerating them, but protecting them, being their champion, recognizing that as you know, young white men of privilege, we have opportunities that others haven't had. And it's incumbent upon us as Christians, as men, as just good people to be respectful and lift others up, be grateful for what we have. So as much as I didn't want to be a father, I, and they drive me crazy because they all have my personality. So they're like super amped and they're beautiful kids. And my job with my wife is to shepherd them safely through the tough life and a tough world with all kinds of challenges and to make sure that we instill in them um, a moral identity, right? A religious identity, a uh, work ethic and, and hope for them the best. So that's what motivates me every day. What also motivates me is after 30 years in the leadership industry, I've learned a lot of things uh, as to what to not do and what to do is right. I wrote, wrote the book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. A lot of leadership books are very academic and very ethereal. I wanted to write a book that was very down and dirty, very raw, very relatable. So I share 30 challenges in the book of things that I screwed up. Most of them are things that I said wrong, did wrong, thought wrong, believed outdated or outdated. And I share very vulnerably, here's 30 challenges that every leader is going to face, whether you're a formal leader or informal. It's funny. I share some blush worthy stories of things that I did or said that now I look back on, I can't believe I did, but it's done extremely well because I believe that when you own your mess, Roman, you make it safe for others to own theirs. Vulnerability is a leadership competency, right? So I hope that book um, speaks to your audience that they want to buy it. It's done extremely well. It's number one on Amazon today in the Kindle version a year later. It debuted at number one for six weeks on Amazon. And it's part of a whole mess of success series that I'm writing coming out in the coming years. So I appreciate the invite to talk about it. Yeah, and I think it's important kind of uh, getting to the point and learning from you know your own kind of mistakes and sharing those mistakes and kind of pitfalls because like you said, everyone in a leadership role and oftentimes, obviously, people don't think they're leaders, but they are directly or indirectly. If they go through similar things, there's similar things that each leader will go through. So I think it's important to kind of understand another person's perspective and how they learn from, you know, the way they went about that situation. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a great contribution of leaders. When you become a formal leader, whether you're the company owner or you're a manager, don't pretend you know it all. Don't pretend that you have made make mistakes. Don't try to be the smartest person in the room. Your job as a leader is not to be the genius, but to be the genius maker of others. To quote Liz Wiseman in an amazing book called Multipliers. Highly recommend her book, Multipliers. I think as a leader, sit your team down and talk about the mistakes you made, what you learned from them. Open the kimono because people will relate to you more. Gone are the days of the hierarchy where People can't touch their leaders, right? Everybody's separate. No, no, no. 
most leaders are one month, one week, one year ahead of their people. Um, the more that you own your mess, the more you make it safe for others to own theirs and move to success. Use your messes as valuable truth-telling, vulnerable discussion with your people. They will respect you so much more than if you seem untouchable and you made no mistake that you do is from your right. That's just a fraud. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's kind of uh, leading from the level of, you know, the yeah. people that report to you or with yeah. you and not kind of throwing out um, different tasks or, you know, ordering people around from a pedestal. Yeah. yeah. So what's one thing you may have seen as a weakness in yourself in the past that you've turned around and utilized as a strength today? I think it's this idea of being the smartest person in the room. I was the chief marketing officer of a public company, global public brand, for eight years. And Roman, I thought, for whatever reason, that my job was to be the most creative, the most disciplined, the most well-read, the smartest person in the room. And as a result of that, Roman, I think that subconsciously, I hired people who I didn't think were more talented than me. They were talented, but I didn't go out and find you know, the top UX designer in the world. I didn't go out and find the top Google Analytics or the Marketo marketing automation expert. I hired people who I liked, who I get along with, and probably people who I could dominate intellectually or socially. I hired smart people. I probably don't give enough credit. But what I realized as a leader is my job isn't to be the most creative, the most talented. I can't be an expert on all things marketing. It's not possible. Try. But I think I came into myself. I was 50, 49, where I realized, no, my job is to hire the social media expert from Maine and bring them to Utah and have them be palpably, noticeably more talented than me and not be threatened by them, but to learn at their feet. I didn't need to be the expert in everything. And so for me, it took a couple of decades to come into the confidence, the humility that allowed me not to be the genius in the room. Humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. And I think I spent too many decades needing to be right. And now I don't need to be right. I just want to make sure that we're doing right, that the best solution, no matter who it comes from, is the one that the company implements for us and our clients. It took me a while to get there. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of those things is, um, you know, ego and the things that you think that you deserve or, you know, a certain level of success you you reach, you may get a little, you know, cocky and you have to kind of humble yourself at times and kind of get yourself to a, a level if you start floating away. So well said. Um, humility is born out of confidence. Confident people can be humble people. Arrogant people are incapable of being humble. I used to think that humility was a weakness. I'm kind of shy, retiring, quiet, that charisma and strength and voice projection, right? We're dominant. That may be also true, but confident leaders are usually humble leaders. And for me, my humility probably didn't become a personality trait until I could move out of needing to be the expert and the know-it-all and everything. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, some people do that sooner than later, but when you do hit later, that kind of, <laughs> yeah, when you do hit that kind of, um, you know, breakthrough, I think it obviously impacts everyone around you. And I think yeah. as a person, just as a person, regardless of your role, or if you consider your leader or not, I think it's important day to day to try to wake up and become a better version of yourself, either learn something, you know, develop or fix a relationship or just kind of adapt and evolve into a better person. You, you want to host a podcast. This is good, man. Good insight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the guests, I, I mean, I like, that's why I love the podcast format. I think uh, as the guests kind of open up ideas, you know, a, a good host doesn't just fly through an interview, obviously, in my opinion, yeah. I think they dig deep within themselves and kind of obviously yeah. contribute to the conversation. Yeah, nicely done, Roman. So uh, what's one piece of advice you can leave with the audience, personal or professional? I think the best someone were to ask me, what do I attribute my career to? It would be friending up. I'm not sure if I, if I coined this phrase or not, but I use it a lot. I've always associated myself with people who were more successful, wealthier, more educated, more diverse, more cultured, more traveled, bankruptcies, you know, so I can learn from them. That doesn't mean that I don't help people out that are on the rise or more fortunate. Don't let your listeners misinterpret this. I spent an hour a day. I dedicated an hour a day to people, helping them find a publisher, find an editor, groom their resume, help, you know, give them coaching, right? I'm the benefit of being around people that helped me tremendously. But I spent all my time hanging out with people who were 10, 15, 20 years older from me, learning from their successes and from their messes, both my personal life and my professional life. Some might call it, I was an opportunist. Some might think I was sucking up. Call it what you want. Um, these people knew what I was doing. I wasn't bamboozling them. These are the same people now in their 70s and 80s that are calling me, asking me to help them with their Zoom calls, right? Or help them launch their podcast or help them publish their book. We're good friends, the circle of life. Deliberate very carefully on who you associate with. And I would argue, make sure that you balance those who you're helping with those who can help you, because that will come back to serve you well. Larry King is going to write the foreword to my next book. I, I idolize Larry King, right? And Larry King is helping me out. And he's also going to get some lift out of as well, too, right? Because he, he loves to attach to my brand as well. I'm no Larry King yet, but I think everybody's helping everybody. Be very deliberate and contemplative around people you associate with, what their work ethic is, their experience as well. And I think the concept of friending up personally and professionally has been the best thing I ever did. And not a one of them would tell you they felt used by me. We're all very good friends to this day. And I don't feel used by those who are friending up to me. I get it, right? We're all kind of walking each other home, so to speak. Yeah. And there's a way I think to go about it. Like you said, you're, you're there helping people, but you know, you're, you're surrounding yourself with like-minded people to you. And then people that are, you know, 10, 20, however many years ahead of yeah. you or where they or where you would like to be. So I think, and being that relationship being co-beneficial. So it's not like you're friends with them just for a specific, you know, added value or what you get back. I think, I mean, at yeah. least for me, it's I'm giving something in return and, and being genuine about it. The other thing I've learned too, is there's no shortcuts to success. Uh, after my own thought leadership base has grown and I've co-written and spoken on stages, 
you know, all these major influencers, Stephanie McMahon is a friend of mine, right? WWE, Seth Godin, General McChrystal, um, a lot of people I write about, Rachel Hollis, Ed Milet, Trent Shelton, Brendan Bouchard, Dan Pink. These people were not successful overnight. Rachel Hollis, you know, she wrote the books, um, uh, Girl Stop Apologizing and Girl Wash Your Face. These books sold more books than anybody else in America in 2019, next to Michelle Obama. These were her sixth and seventh books. She wrote five books before she had a bestseller. And so there's no shortcut to success. Nellie Galan, who was on Donald Trump's Celebrity Apprentice, you know, five years ago, she wrote a very famous book called um, Self Made. She's like, everybody sees my success on TV. They don't see the nights eating tuna fish and living in my car, right? Not in her car, but literally. But I mean, what I struggled to get her with, you only see the overnight success. So you got to pay your reps. There's no shortcuts to success. Yeah, you really see the highlight reel and things like social That's media. What you see. Yeah, That's it's right. Just a, it's just a That's lens right. of all those kind of wins. And like yeah. you said, it's uh, it's a marathon and perseverance and pivoting and learning yeah. from failures. And it's right. not it's not a sprint. You know, I'm I'm in the process of working on some um, television programs. I pitched, you know, I pitched to 10 studios. I've had an iHeartRadio program, right? This is my 174th podcast interview. I've authored four books. No one knows who I am, right? I mean, and so it takes a lot of a lot of time and perseverance and self-confidence to persevere along with your dream. Yeah, I agree. So don't I don't mean, let anybody talk you out of your dream. Yep. No, and I think like that whole circle around you, it's really important who you surround yourself yeah. with yeah, because it's very true. Yeah. if you have that passion and heart, they'll often encourage you and obviously give you constructive criticism and steer you. along the yeah, way. And steer yep. you as well. So I really appreciate you stopping by today. Can you let the audience know how they can find you and if they want to get a hold of the book? Sure. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Love to have you connect to me, Scott Miller at Franklin Covey. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. LinkedIn is kind of my biggest platform, if you will. Uh, I've written several books, Management Mess to Leadership Success. I co-authored the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. And I'm launching a new book in 2021 called Master Mentors, 40 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, based on the podcast that I host. The podcast is called On Leadership with Scott Miller. Google Scott Miller at Franklin Covey, and it's hard not to find me. Awesome. Thanks again for stopping by. Roman, thank you, man. Stay safe. You too. This podcast has been brought to you by Nova Zora Digital. Find out how Nova Zora Digital can help your company grow online. Learn more at NovaZoraDigital.com. Until next time, all you digital savages.